Hello everyone and welcome to Integrated Rhythm, two swing dancing besties navigating race and the black experience in jazz dance and other Afrocentric dances. Uh, your hosts are Chisomo Selamani and Bobby White and this is one of our first episodes that we recorded together. This is just a conversation with Chisomo and I and uh, it's interesting to look back and hear it and hear how even just over the last few months since this was recorded my understanding uh, and the way that I view things has grown and changed and so I would have not made certain assumptions and I would have framed questions in slightly different ways. So it's just fascinating to look back over that and as Chisomo uh, is constantly reminding us, it's an imperfect journey and that's okay. So we hope you enjoy this early episode of Integrated Rhythm. And for this episode, we're just going to, just Jisomo and I are going to talk, and we're going to talk about something that uh, I just think is so important for all of this stuff. And I got, I got it from reading, um, do, 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 do. I should have been more prepared. Uh, uh, I got uh. this. Hey. I got this. Hey, 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 hey. Ah. All right. I got this from reading uh, Stamped from the Beginning. Ibram X. God, my Kindle keeps cutting it away. <laughs> oh, my. Just show me the title. Ibram X. Kendi. I, I also don't know if I'm saying that correct. I really should have researched his Well, name. he is also the, he's the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, right? So yeah. he's done a lot of wonderful work. So anyway, so stamped from the beginning. Yeah, and in the introduction, uh, uh, he talks about how you can frame a lot of American Americans' racism history. And I'll use my words. Uh, you can frame them in two different ways. You can frame them as, as like skin color racism or like, you know, biological racism, like people of this skin color are objectively inferior kind of thing. Uh, but the other kind of racism is an assimilationist racism, as he puts it. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, the culture of, mm. of, of these people are is objectively inferior to the culture of like white European people is, is obviously what, what was going on in this specific instance. And so uh, when that happened, it was one of those things where I had to put the book down and go and just process that and be with, with thoughts and feelings for a while, because that just really just kind of really beautifully put so many things that, that have gone on that I, that I, you know, think about in the past or in the present happening now. And so what we have is we have, uh, I think that genetic racism is very, very low, for instance, in like the swing dance scene. I, 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 I don't hear of a lot of people walking around saying like black people are obviously genetically inferior to white people. However, I, I would assume and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's probably quite a lot of either conscious or subconscious uh, assimilationist racism, like black 
culture is something that white people don't understand or they think is not, you know, is, 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 has some differences with white culture. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's the kind of basic idea. Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, I think that it's brilliant that you, um, uh, pulled reference from Ibram Kendi because he has his body of work is just absolutely impressive and I would encourage anyone to um, research his work and to study the the words that he's put together because he's he has a lot of great resources. Um, I I would say that there are aspects of both kinds present in the swing dancing scene. I think if we were uh, recognizing that the swing dancing scene is um, a microcosm of the bigger, of greater society, um, I would say that I think as a society, as the U.S., we've gotten past like um, our uh, people people aren't necessarily going to immediately state rude comments to people who are darker skinned. Um, there are places where that still happens, but I think that as a society, there, there are a lot of behaviors that have changed. So, so it seems like there isn't as much conflict just with the way a person appears. Um, but I, but I do think that we have incorporated a lot of stereotypes and ideas about what a person with darker skin can do and what what they're what they should do. Um, uh, you know that like one of my favorite books is Whistling Vivaldi because it talks about the internalized stereotypes that many people have and the harm that comes from that. So I do think that there is like a, I, I don't want to say that there, there isn't that like um, you're darker skin, so therefore you're not capable because I mean, there's also still like all kinds of things about pain and healthcare and um, assumptions about particularly black bodies. So, so there's that, but I do think what you're talking about in terms of assimilationist racism is definitely there. And, um, people have working assumptions, right? So I know that with me being African, being from Zambia, I've kind of been on the wrong end of many conversations. (laughs) (laughs) I am, I present as black. I sound, um, like what people would say, I have a general American. Um, so, so in speech pathology, we've categorized the way that, like, uh, the way that we, like Bobby, the way that you and I speak in this moment, as general American English or standard American English. I, I take up issue with standard American English because that mm. indicates that there's a standard, um, <laughs> you know. And so, yeah, that, and and if we want to get into the work of social justice, that a lot of much of that work is decentralizing. Um, what has been perceived to be normal, you know? And so, so anyway, so thinking about the way that I talk um, and the way that I look being dark skinned, um, I, I, I inhabit a lot of traits of, of a, of an American um, and, and like a black American at work. Right. So, (laughs) (laughs) so people will talk about president Obama. Like there are a couple jokes out there about like president Obama and the way that he talks and like, how can we trust a man who talks like that? And um, some comedians are like, 
well, have you ever met a black person at work? <laughs> like, Obama <laughs> talks like a black person at work, and so I sound because like he's always person. at work when you're a president. <laughs> right? Exactly. I get, you're it. Always at work. I get it. <laughs> exactly. So I sound like a black American at work. And so um, there are parts of my um, identity that are African-American, because regardless of where you come from, if you're in the United States and you're my complexion, you are perceived as African-American and you're treated yeah. as such. So so that's what I mean. So I'm so I better. Sorry. There are parts of me that are African-American. And then there's obviously, I mean, if you read anything about me, if you Google me, you hear all about Zambia. So I'm definitely Zambian. Um, But I, like I say, I'm on the wrong end of some of these conversations because um, the way that I am perceived, especially having this like general American English situation by some of my counterparts in Zambia is as being better than because it seems like I've assimilated to a culture that is categorically higher than another, which I take so much issue with, Um, so much issue. And then we see there are some African-Americans that will see me as being a member of Zambian society and seeing that as categorically higher. And so the fact that we have this stratification of cultures, even within the Black community, to me, it's problematic because we are all, all means all, we are all worthy, we are all valid, Blackness is not a monolith. We're all allowed to exist in our different iterations. But because of our internalized understanding of oppression and culture, we find the stratification within the Black community, within Black communities, I should say, and, of course, across communities as well. So those are some of my thoughts. And so we see that in the swing dancing scene. For sure. And so um, I have been told that because I am African, that people are more inclined to listen to me about things related related to black things. And within the swing dancing scene. Isn't that so fascinating? It is. Is fascinating. But yeah, there are certain people who are deemed to be um, more expert because of their cultural affiliation. And so um, it is frustrating because there is a particular type of black that is appropriate or whatever, or deemed the most worthy. But it's also, I would say it's analogous to the, there's a type of woman that the world tries to make women. And so (laughs) everybody loses as a result. Yeah. So anyway, I will let you talk, Bobby. <laughs> no, that's okay. This, this show is not about me talking. Uh, but it does remind me that, uh, so first off, as a, as a, it's so amazing, I'm, I'm sure, uh, as, as you just mentioned, how much speech is a part of that, how much like the, the words and the way that you say words can, can make just a huge difference in, in the way that people perceive you. I know for like, um, I remember first off, Javier Johnson, amazing Balboa dancer and amazing. great guy. Uh, he, I remember uh, we, we kind of grew up in the Atlanta swing scene for a few years together. And we would, uh, uh, he, we were in, he was in practices and teams we were on together and all this kind of stuff. And I got, I was really fortunate to have a lot of 
uh, awesome opportunities to play around with him. And, and like, he, he's so fun to bounce ideas off of. And uh, I remember uh, talking to him and uh, saying like, you know, like at Javi, I, I feel like I always, I feel like I always connected with you like from the beginning and there wasn't like, I don't know, like I just, it was really, uh, as if to say like my experience in, in these relationships was so normal that it didn't even register on my brain that like, oh yeah, Javi is a black man who has the struggles and problems that black men face every day. And I just, that just didn't even like cross my mind in those years that we, uh, that we were really close in Atlanta together. And, and he just said, oh yeah, well, cause I was code switching. Mm-hmm. And that also was like a mind like, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I was like, oh, right, right. He like, yeah. he code switched for me. And a lot of code switching is, you know, that, that changing the language and changing the way that you speak to someone like Obama at work. Yeah. I assume. <laughs> yeah. And to this day, like my brain still flips. Like, uh, so I live in um, Prospect Park, Sleppard's Gardens in Brooklyn, which is a, uh, Caribbean Island predominant neighborhood. And my brain will still do a little somersault without me even realizing it. Right. Like it's subconscious. Like I'm walking down the street and I see a person dressed, uh, you know, very much in the fashions of black Americans, especially like in, in the high school that I grew up in, in Atlanta. So friends, you know, like a ball cap and like streetwear and all this kind of stuff. And in my head, I'm expecting that person to sound like, the people, you know, that I grew up with in my high schools and stuff. And instead, all of a sudden, this thick Caribbean American accent is is coming out of the conversation as I walk past them. And my brain just has that little somersault where it's like, whoa, that was not what I was expecting. Why was I expecting something? I need to think about this. Yeah. Yeah. I So I think that so much of social justice work is questioning those assumptions, you know? And so if something hits you in your gut and you're confused or you're upset or you have any kind of emotional <laughs> reaction, I think it's really important to take that and, and examine it and wonder like, where is that coming from and why, you know, and um, what's my part in this? What messages have I absorbed? And, and, and truly kind of stare at it like a science project. Cause like, as we talked about in our first episode, um, we're not about shame here, right? We're not, we're not about shame. We're, we're about growth and, and growth is often uncomfortable. Um, and growth, growth comes out of that uh, reflective moment. But yeah, it's, we have assumptions about what's going to come out of somebody's mouth. So as a, as a speech pathologist, um, I remember I was studying under, um, he's a, he was a really well-known um, voice specialist, Dr. Hicks. Um, in my grad school class with him, he talked about how um, there's so much we there's so much the voice tells us. So when you hear somebody speak, um, it can tell us about different, just tell us different things about a person, right? Um, but then, as I heard him. I thought about myself and my own voice and how if somebody hears me on the phone and they don't see me, there's so many assumptions that they can make about me. <laughs> and in fact, I have had many, it's so funny because like if you get a written document from me um, or if you get um, a, if you have a voice sample or if you see me, 
I've had a lot of people have a hard time piecing all three of those pieces of evidence together. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, actually, so I, I had submitted a proposal for a presentation for the Eastern Conference on uh, Communication Disability in Kenya a couple years ago. And um, I was, uh, it was accepted. I was invited to chat, to, to come and present. And um, so they just, all they had was written communication. And this was before I put like my pronouns in my signature. So they had no idea who, like what I would present as, <laughs> but they made an assumption. <laughs> so when I showed how, up. How did that I, assumption go? <laughs> People were so confused. I rocked up to Kenya and people were like, oh, you're Professor Salamani? Oh, we were, <laughs> for, like, we were expecting a man. <laughs> so, <laughs> they, thought, they thought I was going to be a man. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not a man. And then I have had communication <laughs> where it's just- Don't ever apologize for not being a man to Somo. <laughs> I know that you're- <laughs> I, yeah, no, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't apologize. I'm like, Hey, that's interesting that you thought that I was a man. <laughs> we should talk about that sometime. You can pay me to talk about that sometime. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And then, uh, I've had people, particularly in Zambia, talk to me on the phone and then me show up and they're like, Oh, we were expecting a white lady to show up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I actually learned to code switch a lot, like with my family in order, in order to be more understood. So the way that we're speaking here is not at all how I sound when I cross the ocean. Do you mind giving us a little bit of that crossing <laughs> the ocean? Oh man, I don't know. Can I, can I, I'm like, am I, am I, I put yourself there mentally in the yeah, zone. Like what, what kind of things do you need to surround yourself with? <laughs> yeah, actually. So. I was a couple Did, years ago. Did you just get like angry at your mom? Isn't that like a, a <laughs> trick or something like that? Or <laughs> wait, does, does it come out when you drink? When so uh, I went to uh, I, so I grew up in the South. Went to a university in Tennessee, and it was hilarious how many people once they got drunk that yeah. Southern draw started coming out yeah, strong. It does. I've actually seen that happen with people. Yeah, they it just well because when you're relaxed and you're yeah, but I. I, um, when I get off the plane, there's usually like a couple, like a couple hours or a couple days transition. And so I remember talking to a good friend of mine, um, who had really only ever heard me in Zambia. And then we talked here and she was like, ah, Chisomo, your, your English, it's very, it's, it's too deep. <laughs> it's too deep. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I was like, oh, sorry, let me, let me, um, let me come back to Zambia. I need to, I need to go home. Oh. And so, so yeah, actually I, um, you know, I interviewed amazing author, Namwali Serpal, um, and professor at Harvard, I, when I interviewed her as one of the topics of conversation before our interview, we talked about code switching because she, she, um, switches, she switches codes and she's reading her book. So she goes a little bit deeper into oh, Zambia. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a thing. But then I also talking about these different identities, like the African-American side, there's also that as well. You know, like I, I was talking to some students earlier this week and um, I was in professional mode and one of my students was like, well, I don't have too much time. I was like, nah, girl, I don't have time either. Like, I'm like, you know, I, I just was able to like, you know, and so there's, yeah. And I also like mixing formality with informality with my students because oh, I yeah. think it's important to model that. But, but going back to this like overarching, overarching conversation about um, different types of racism and thinking about the cultural pieces, I, I, I think Black is King is a really great uh, kind of case study in this discussion. Um, there's There are these notions of um, kingdoms. Do you mind explaining what that is really quick? Yeah. So or Black is King is the body of work that um, Beyonce did as a collaborative effort with many uh, musicians across the continent of Africa. So she had um, contributors, I believe, from South Africa, from Ghana, uh, I want to say Nigeria as well. And so in those, if you know anything about Afrobeats, um, African pop music that's coming out right now, those are kind of like the the the, the hot spots. So Nigeria is doing some great things. Ghana is doing some great things. South Africa is doing some great things. And honestly, there are many countries in between. So like Tanzania or Tanzania. Tanzania. Sorry. <laughs> so speaking of uh, code switching, right? So I'm going to go back to my, my mom hates it that I call it Tanzania because I picked that up while I was living in Zambia versus when I grew up because she said Tanzania. That's a dialectical difference. She says Tanzania. Um, but so Tanzania has some great artists. Um, so does the Congo. Like, so yeah. So if you're into Afrobeats, there's, several centers of excellence. But going back to Beyonce, she did this collaborative work with these different, from artists from all over the continent. And it has been critiqued and disputed. Like there's much dispute over this um, collection. Like, so everybody agrees the music's fire. <laughs> it's like, of course. The music is fire. But um, there are a lot of problematic um ideals and ideas that are like thread through this so even the notion of kings and kingdoms like there's so many different ways to look at that so hopefully in a future episode we might have a more uh, a greater discussion about that yeah yeah and i'm really interested, like uh uh Chisomo and i got to got to take a course from Monsell durden yeah. who is an amazing scholar uh with hip-hop and other black american art forms and he uh, he's broke down a a Beyonce video, uh, and it was you know it was it was really cool to see all the things that were going into it and stuff. And so ever I've always I've had a lot of respect for Beyonce and her artistic uh, yeah. staff and that's working to like do all these awesome things. And and yeah, it's you know when you're Beyonce and you say something like that's going to be powerful. And so. I, yeah. I can only imagine the amount of responsibility that she either has or, or that she does have and whether or not, you know, how much she feels it is her responsibility to like craft that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in talking about it. Yeah. More yeah. Later. 
<laughs> you're you're right though. There's the question about like, and I think we kind of always toe this line um, because we try to be particularly thoughtful individuals, right? Like, so the the line between like artistic privilege and responsibility, and so. Um, there are lots of things that have been pursued in the name of art and in creativity. And like, there've been some aesthetically pleasing, um, some generally pleasing products, but then like, there's some underlying ideology. Sorry, Bobby, you look like you want to say something. Oh, no, that's, that's, yeah. Uh, that's fine. Uh, and and yeah. It, it reminded me of, you know, uh, whenever um, there's a few comedians, uh, black comedians who, you know, like they'll do the jokes the way that they want to do them and they'll say the things they want to say. Yeah. And then they'll get attacked being like, you got, you have to stand up for the culture better. Or like, you right. can't say that because that's like against the culture. And I always feel really sympathetic to like how they're, they just, they want to be an artist. They want to be themselves. And so many white people, uh, get the chance to just kind of, you know, the, white comedians can be of any kind of, of, you know, opinion, you know, all over the board, you can be a white comedian and have a, an opinion. And there are people who might think that you're a jerk or offensive if they don't like your stuff, but they never say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're supposed to be like speaking for white people. Yeah. You should also have that burden as well. You know, yeah. that never happens. And so like, uh, that's, that I, that's really sad that, that, Black artists have to have this like responsibility burden on top of everything that they do because they're almost always very small minority representing uh, a vast and and you know great culture of of lots of rich different ideas. Yeah, so I completely hear you on that. I think it's it's interesting because there's. Um, I'm sorry, I was having a fly moment, um, which makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. A little uncomfortable, so I will just... By the way, this was recorded three days after the uh, vice presidential debate. <laughs> yeah, just a few days after that moment. Vice presidential debate 2020. Uh, anyway, so um, I'm not going to... If you are curious about what that means, go ahead and Google it. There was... Uh, U.S. Vice Presidential Debate 2020 fly. I, that's all I'm going to say. Don't need to get into it. But um, so I was squatting. It might be the only thing you've heard about the debate. <laughs> that might be exactly depending on where you are. Um, so I I might have just distracted myself too much so much that I didn't have can't remember a response. Hi, everyone. This is Bobby, and we here at Integrated Rhythm would love for you to shop from Black-owned businesses. Why is that? Well, it's actually a very powerful way to contribute to the Black American community. It puts money in the community and allows people to thrive and flourish. And that's what we love to do. You can do this in a lot of different ways. Uh, one easy way is let's say you have a gift that you need to give someone. Well, just go to Etsy black owned business shops that's a list of black owned business people on etsy and there you can find lots of incredible gift ideas for all of your loved ones so check it out and thank you that was for chisomo Hey everybody, this is Bobby White from Integrated Rhythm. We're here to ask you to please consider donating to the podcast. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash integrated rhythm. You can do so by Venmoing at Bobby Swungover. 
and make sure to put a little IR in the note so we make sure it goes to the right people. You can also do so by PayPaling at BobbyWhite3 and once again putting a little IR in the in the window there. Doing so will help us keep this podcast going and we love doing it and we hope you love it too. If you can't afford to donate at this time because times are rough, we totally understand. We don't want you to put yourselves out. We want you to keep enjoying the podcast for free. However, if you have a little bit of pocket change in your pocket, we would greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thanks and have a great day. We're back. So um, there's a burden that many, um, particularly people from minoritized perspectives, have. When you are one of few, it is often incumbent upon you to represent your people, which if you think about is, is so unfair. Um, anyone who has been like the only, uh, only person of color in a classroom, like has had that moment where an instructor is talking about, like, I, I had a moment and God bless him. Truly. I loved my English lit teacher in high school. I loved him. Oh no, it's going to be um, English late. But, oh, but no. I mean, I, I I had to like inform the pronunciation of some words that were like from a, a West African context. So I could roundabout get like, so I had to read to certain passages from this African book. And so, I mean, it was because I was the African in the room, right? And so at that point in time, it didn't seem problematic to me. And I was ultimately you know, you get through, like Maya Angelou says, like, when you know better, you do better. And so we're always striving. <laughs> but, but like, here's the thing, though, is like, if you are from a minoritized perspective, oftentimes you're asked to represent either explicitly or it's an implicit expectation. Um, but that's, un- that's unfair. Like you said, to speak plainly, and I'm sorry if this is offensive, but like, oftentimes white people are allowed to stand for themselves. So if we look at a white person that does something that nobody likes or very few people like they're like oh well that person that per- there's something yeah, wrong they're, just, they're just yeah there's... who's sorry bobby no i was i was i was agreeing with you i was playing along with the yeah, yeah you're like that i got that I, got, I got physically involved in in, in the discussion <laughs> i appreciate it that person that that individual did something wrong but um oftentimes if it is a person from a minoritized perspective then it's like well, you know how blank people do. I mean, I've been I've been holding back. I really want to we have another segment where we'll probably talk a little bit more about Kamala Harris, but like there's I've seen a lot of a, a commentary about about black women with Kamala Harris. So once again, right? So like Pence is able to be Pence and he it's like, "Oh, well, Pence is disruptive." Not all white men are disruptive, but Kamala Harris, like, I hate it when black women are smug or like black women, this black women, that, you know, like, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's the, oh man, it made me so frustrated when I saw like, uh, in some of the social media feeds, people being like, what, when you hear good intentioned, well-intentioned, good intentioned, well-intentioned. It's all good. (laughs) <laughs> when you hear it's all good intentioned people uh trying to like you know uh i saw 
boop, boop, boop. I'm sorry. I'm having an ADD week. So that's why my brain is a little scattered. But so to see on my news feeds, uh, discussions of, and, and people being like, oh, uh, I wish she had done it this way. I wish she had done this. I wish she'd been more aggressive. You know, that's a big, that's a big thing that uh, yeah. liberals, fellow liberals will give liberals advice is like, we need to stop being so, you know, bending over. We need to like show strength. We need to like, you know, like rise to the, to the often stubborn challenge that's being uh, brought to, to the situation. And to, to see people like say that and to, to know the little bit that I do about like the black woman's life and, and the, all those, the way those stereotypes, like if you, any politician has to walk a fine line in how they interact with people, any one, mm-hmm. but I can only imagine how much BS a black woman has to do because the second that they get aggressive, or, you know, the, the second that they get strong, people take it as aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> see, I even said the second they get aggressive, like that, my first thought was the second they get and like, no, that's not the right word. Right. Well, and there's a conversation about, um, uh, I, I had a conversation with a friend about the difference between, um, indignant and aggressive, I believe it was, or like anger and aggression. Right. So, Anger and indignance, indig- indignance. Wow. I, so I have some family members that will probably listen to this at some point in time nice. and they'll be like, somo indignance. Indignance. You couldn't say, couldn't. yeah. So I, I have a particular family member in mind who I know will make fun of me for that moment, but um, indignation, let's do that because I can, I can say that word instead. Um, and obviously, anytime I have moments where I have difficulty speaking, I'm like, hey, guess what? I'm really good at my job. <laughs> Super good. But um, anger and indignation are emotions, emotions that everybody's entitled to, because people should be allowed to exist in the full spectrum of humanity. And anger and indignation are allowed. But I... Um, I actually really only started to allow myself to access the feeling of anger recently through therapy. (laughs) And so, because I spent so much of my life trying to be, um, trying, trying to be what other people perceived as good. And oftentimes, like you said, if you're a black woman, like if you start to even get into the territory of anger and indignation, then you're loud and aggressive aggression has to do with an action. And so it's interesting when we perceive someone having an emotional experience that we determine that they're either plotting to act or they are acting, Mm. you know? So because a state of being Mm. is different from a state of doing, but there's this assumption with certain people that when they are being, they're existing in a space that they are going to do or they are doing, which is not fair because other people can be. There's a separation between them being and them doing. Um, and so, so yeah, so you're, so you're absolutely right. There's this fine line. I'll give you an example that happened in one of my classrooms. So I had a student that was perpetually coming late to class. And one day the student rocked up late to class and I clapped. And so anyone who understands 
Black culture in the U.S. understands what I mean when I say I clapped. <laughs> so I physically clapped, and hopefully this is not, I apologize if it's aggressive to the ears. See, I'm doing something, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I was like, I'm just going to say student. I'm not going to say their name. But I was like, student, you came late. <laughs> we started 15 minutes ago. And so, and I said it, it like that and it was kind of humorous. Like people, I thought it, I thought it was humorous and like my co-instructor thought it was humorous, but the students were stunned. They were just kind of like, and I, I and what, what is the general racial makeup of the class? Um, so I actually had, um, because of the class, um, I actually had a pretty great, um, mix of diversity i know we're having an ambulance moment i guess the moment the ambulance went by sweet anyway um so i was teaching my first year experience class pop lock and lindy hop and my co-instructor was also also identifies as black or african-american and so this was one of the few classes at baldwin wallace that had an instructing team that was entirely from a diverse perspective and so our student our racial makeup was probably about 50% maybe of students of color. So many students understood what clapping means culturally. So I I did that. Everybody was stunned. Everybody kind of looked at me for a second. And because we had built a rapport, this was about halfway through the semester, um, one of the students kind of just chimed in and was like, so you know when females clap usually that's not they're just like they're all thinking about their moms and like oh no my mom is about to smack me upside the head or something like there's like they're like oh no and so everybody everyone had interpreted that as an act of aggression and it it was really it was interesting it was it was right it was interesting I was like whoa okay you all know me you know I'm super chill and you know, I'm just, I'm using one of my cultural pieces to like bring this sheep that is going astray. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, gently guiding them back <laughs> into the fold. Like that's what I'm trying to do desperately in this moment. And so I'm using humor to do that, but then it was misinterpreted. Anyway, it ended up being fine. Um, you know, I... I caught myself midway through clapping through a sentence one time, just because that was my emotional state at the time. Yeah. And, uh, and it was the first time and I, and it's really weird to start off clapping confidently and then to be like, I should not be doing this. And then to stop clapping halfway through, like, <laughs> like I should not be doing this right now. And <laughs> like, I just caught myself, let's see, I, I think that uh, my theory, I'm gonna throw this at you and this might be a horrible theory. Uh, I think it's, I don't know. I think it, so my theory that I just came up with, so it's like five seconds old, <laughs> is that, uh, and this is based on some of the things that I've read before, and it really, it really rings true for me, is this idea that um, one of the things that Black American culture just does so well is it creates satisfying uh, catharsis like really sad like so the idea of that that 
when you clap, when you when you're really feeling that emotion and you're saying it with the words, like it's just such a satisfying way of like expressing that moment. And, you know, this is like this goes back to all American music, in my opinion, like, you know, the way that a swing rhythm feels, you know, the way that hip hop rhythm feels like there's something so satisfying about it that like that's why you want to move to it. That's why you want to grow to groove to it. That's why I think a lot of people stick around when they're doing swing dancing is because swing dancing is such a satisfying experience to have. And, uh, yeah. 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 And I, I think like when we talk about ownership of swing dancing and, um, people wanting to exist in spaces in, in swing dance spaces that, um, because there are aspects like, I think you've actually told me this before. You're like many of the greatest aspects of, American culture come from black American culture. Absolutely. And, and the thing that is an absolute atrocity is that we're not willing to acknowledge that fact. Yes. And it's particular. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the. Wah, 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 wah. Yeah, see, I'm having one of those days where my thoughts cannot stay in my face. It's it is all good. I I hear you. It's this has been a week, man. There was um there's a meme that was going around and it was like these are the decades in which I've lived. It's like 1980s, 1990s, 2000, 2010s, early 2020, January <laughs> to March 2020. <laughs> like <laughs> April May 2020 like it's just it is right now October 2020 is like a very like this is like a decade in and of itself yeah, yeah, well, uh, well actually this this is actually going back to the satisfy the satisfaction thing um in the documentary uh on minstrelsy that the name of it is not the official name of the documentary is not coming to my head right now but um, it's is isn't it um is it ethnic notions yes the ethnic notion, yes, and ethnic notions. The speaker said one of those things where I had to pause it and like go into a room and just sit with myself and think for a while. <laughs> uh, and that was that um, white people have always gotten catharsis out of Black American uh, artistic uh, endeavors because white people were so repressed from being able to express emotions they're so repressed from being able to like get up and dance they're so express so repressed Did i say expressed they're not expressed they're <laughs> they're so repressed from you know so many things about what it means to be a, a white person in a european american society yeah. um and that was something that really struck a chord with me because i grew up in uh by no means i'm just gonna yeah, it's all I'm gonna right. let Satoma take over for a second while I mute the microphone. Yeah, so I, I, I think I, I, I totally hear where you're coming from. I, um, first of all, I'm gonna repeat the name of that documentary, Ethnic Notions. Please look out for that. Um, we've dropped a couple pieces of knowledge in terms of resources, so feel free to review the podcast to hear. Monsell Durden is another person who is a great historian. Um, an educator. And so Bobby and I love working and listening to him, um, working with him and listening to him. So 
it is it is interesting how the majority population uh, in the U.S. has kind of grabbed onto these elements of Black American culture, African American culture. Um, and so if you feel some sort of pushback as people talk about appropriation versus appreciation, um, and if you hear from Black voices that uh, white people need to engage in some reflection as they interact with Black things, as we were talking about with clothes, um, it's because many things that and many things that come from black american culture have just been subsumed with no acknowledgement that they are black american and so the thing that brings us here today we, we're gathered here today <laughs> the thing that brings us here today is the fact that many people if you were listening to this and you've never swing danced before in your life who swing dances Imagine, conjure an image in your mind. What image comes to mind when you think about swing dancing? Who swing dances? And that image looks very different, probably, from the people who actually originated the dance. And that is like the quintessential example of what we're talking about. Anyway, Bobby, um, yeah, your thoughts? I, I think that was a beautiful summation of the conversation that we've had so far. And obviously, We've touched upon like 20 different topics. You know, we've dipped in like five feet deep in them to and pulled out and jump into a new topic. Obviously, <laughs> this is going to be something we're going to talk about a lot uh, more throughout these episodes and stuff. But I'm really excited. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited too. Thanks for hanging in and listening to us. And we love discussing this. And as Bobby said, um, we are not purporting to be perfect at all nope we're not we're on a journey and so we're trying to do our due diligence in um, engaging in candid discussion where we are right now and where we are right now is going to be different from where we'll be in three months six months etc um the amount of learning that i have gone through since the beginning of 2020 is immense um and, and so I, we're, we would hope that the things that we say spark discussion and also encourage you to research and find yes. answers for yourself. Um, so, yeah. So, so thanks for listening to us. Thank you for listening to our imperfect journey. Uh, we appreciate you all. Integrated rhythm with Jasomo and Bobby.